Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Indigenous Peoples Day on Monday, which means we have a holiday weekend clips program for you. It's a newsy one. Features artists Odabong Nkanga and Griselda Rosas. Nkanga was just awarded the 2025 Nasher Prize by the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. The museum said it was giving Nkanga the award for, quote, weaving together powerful works that delve into the complex, often fragile relationships between humans, the land, and its resources, touching on issues of consumption, global circulation, connectivity, and care. The segment you'll hear this week was taped in 2018 on the occasion of Odabong and Kanga to dig a hole that collapses again, a survey at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago that was curated by Omar Khalif. On the second segment, Griselda Rosas, whose work is now on view at the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive. Odabong and Kanga, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Robert Frank and Todd Webb Across America, 1955. Step into a unique photographic journey with Robert Frank and Todd Webb, two photographers who were both funded by Guggenheim Fellowships to capture America in 1955. The New York Times had this to say. While Robert Frank was driving across the United States, Todd Webb was covering the same terrain by bicycle, boat, and foot. Robert Frank's work has become an iconic piece of photographic history but Todd Webb's project remains largely unknown. This is the first time their work has been shown together, offering a rare opportunity to explore America's diversity through their lenses. Discover this extraordinary exhibition at mfah.org slash across America. Support comes from Getty, presenting the groundbreaking new exhibition Alfredo Bolton, looking at Venezuela 1928 to 1978, on view through January 7th, 2024. Considered one of the most important champions of modern art and art history in Venezuela, Alfredo Bolton is shockingly underrecognized outside his home country until now. The exhibition explores Bolton from several angles, including his photographs of Venezuelan people and landscapes, connections to artists of his time, and his involvement in the development of art history in Venezuela. Experience the show in both English and Spanish and enjoy additional programming including a film screening and live jazz performance. Learn more and make free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Entre Horizontes, Art and Activism Between Chicago and Puerto Rico. Experience the artistic connections and social justice movements that link Puerto Rico with Chicago via an intergenerational group of artists alongside rich archival material that traces the relationships between art, politics, place, and identity. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. And we're back. Odabong and Kanga, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, thank you. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here and to have this discussion with you. At the core of, of your work, and, and for really about 20 years, has been a certain insistence that individuals have a relationship, should have a relationship with the land, be it the land that they're from or the land that produced things that are around them, food, minerals, what have you. How did you come to decide that was going to be the fundamental principle of, of your work? Because certainly once you identified it, you you spent a lot of years within it. I think it's not a question of decision. I think it's just a question of being in it. And moving from a place, you know, 
moving from Nigeria, going to living in Paris, and then living in Amsterdam, and then now living in Antwerp, and also traveling to different parts of the world, your body, your emotions, your psychological states are totally intertwined with thinking about or thinking about places or being in certain places, the temperatures, the things that you eat and how your body reacts to that. So there is this very connected or way of being in places and the kinds of shifts that you have to do when you go to certain places that you're not accustomed to and how to find connectivities with those places. And I think that is the way that I've been thinking through or making my work is in relation to places, spaces, emotions, that relation to your spiritual being, to your emotional part. And that has totally affected the way I work. Even so, kind of the way land has been used in Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, has been central to the work for a long time. Was it that as you were in Europe, you became more aware of how Europe benefited, if you will, from its exploitation of sub-Saharan Africa, and that's how it found its way into the work? I would say that it's a combination of being in Europe or being in West Africa or different parts of Africa, but I think it's also being able to go to places like Brazil and see how things are connected with through its architecture, understanding structures in multiple places and how they resonate and how they, they're similar, but at the same time different. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's particularly being here, but it's the possibility of being in multiple places that allows for that way of thinking and that way of reflecting on the world or on resources, on materials. Those ways of connecting or trying to connect why is something here and not there. What happened that this technology allows for this place to exist the way it does are the ways that I started thinking through the work and also looking at places in relation to a certain kind of decay or a certain kind of prosperity of that land uh, was to understand how things moved from one place to another to make it possible. So it's, it's more or less the space in between, the gaps in between, the things that are not necessarily in front of you, but you try to make connections of places. And I think that's where the, the work starts taking its place. That's a good transition to one of the earliest, to talking about one of the earliest pieces in the show. It's from 1999. The title is, Sell Out 2%, You Are Beautiful, But You Will Always Remind Me of Violence, Compressor Compressed. So we'll have an image of this on, on manpodcast.com. But for, for now, the, the top half of the piece includes two red eye-shaped figures, and the words, You Are Beautiful, But You Will Always Remind Me of Violence, are written where the eyes would be, where the, the iris and the pupil would, would be. This feels like a really foundational work. Was this kind of an early attempt to define where you plan to go? No, actually, the, this piece itself is in the book to dig a hole that collapses again. And it's not actually been shown in the exhibition. So 
in the book to dig a hole that collapse again, which is the it's a slash artist book, um, a catalog or monograph somehow. It shows a lot of works that are not in the collection, but early drawings in a chronological order of drawings that have been made over time. So this work that you mentioned is a very early drawing, and it was a, something that I'd heard and that I also read in certain books that were constantly looking at the other as some as people that were valid. And it was also in the a lot of times in the news that you would hear of uh, different parts of Africa that would be talking about the violence of the people or talking about the wars or talking about this kind of notion of there was nothing else than violence. And so it was just a, a drawing that I'd made in relation to thinking about those things and how at the same time the exotism of the other and saying, oh, you know, your people are beautiful, but at the same time, you would hear another part of the story, which is like, of course, about violence itself. So these drawings were the early drawings that kind of talked about that reflection of two states of being, or two states of being read as beautiful at the same time as violent, and how, you know, that kind of resonation between both. So these were just things that were being experienced or being read about or when I looked at ethnographic researches or, you know, the way information had been transmitted over time. These were kind of drawings that were reflecting on that. So the 99 drawing then is more about people than it is about pointing toward violence on the landscape. It's more or less about the kind of informations that have been put into place and the ways that information and the ways that news, history books, all that had played a role in the way certain people are considered or thought or imagined. When did you begin to bring colonialist extraction, mining and such, into the work as as such a primary subject? Was that in school? Was it after you started your professional career? I, I would not necessarily say that there is a specific point in time. I would say that the the way of thinking through the work or making the work has always been that connection in relation to the body and to the space. So there are many works, like, for example, con- the works of contain measures, were very much looking at that notion of land, looking at that notion of body, looking at the notion of um, shifting states of things. And I think it's just been a gradual process of the building up of thinking of the body as something that can be cut, um, that can be cleansed, that can be taken care of. And if we transpose that and think of the land at the same time, we start thinking of holes, we start thinking of places that are of remediation or of restoration. And I think one of the works that kind of really goes deeply into that would say, I'll start saying works like Glimmer and works like In Pursuit of Bling, which is also in the show, where it kind of, it really expands multiple thoughts that I had or that I have in relation to body, land, spaces, minerals, material, yeah, and magic, let's say. What of what of what of the the maybe not exactly magic, but magical 
things about the contained measures acrylic on paper paintings is that they build relationships between people and pieces of landscape or between pieces of landscape and other pieces of landscape. And and you do that through an, an, a number of ways, but one of them is these platforms that have, have something on them, and then the platforms are all kind of joined. What was the origin of of the platforms and, and that joining? The, the way of thinking of the platforms was to really come back to that place of the containment, something that is contained and something that is placed upon or something that is pierced through. And so when we start thinking of that notion of containment, we can then start creating a structure that allows for something to be on. Once there is a flat platform, then it can float within the paper. It can float and we don't actually start thinking of that notion of something that is being restricted within a space. At the same time, we can start thinking of borders of landscapes that have been cut out. And that cutting out for me is also a certain kind of containment, but at the same time, a certain kind of protection against or for. So we we start thinking of different kinds of mechanisms that around that notion of a certain structure but also around politics and social decisions and politics that affect lands and contain them within a certain platform or certain uh, structure itself. So the drawings by thinking through these kinds of processes of layers of containment, and then the drawings can sprout from there. You mentioned the piercing of elements in in your paintings in contained measures there are these kind of brown tree branch like structures but this idea or this painterly move of piercing runs through your work for for years and years thereafter whether it's rope blue triangular lines why is piercing uh, such a useful metaphor or move for you the, the, the idea of piercing is, I think, the way earlier works that I, I started working on with the needle and thinking of it as a double, something that has a, a certain kind of duality, in which you, as you're piercing through, you're destroying, and at the same time, as you pull it through, you're sewing and bringing it together. So the early works were really looking at that kind of duality of, of marking something, but at the same time, as you're marking it, you're thinking of creating a whole, but at the same time, you're, it's, also, it's also changing that structure, that landscape that is there. The piercing has many ways of thinking, but most times I would like people to reflect on that act of actually piercing something and what it means in relation to drilling, in relation to everything around it. When you pierce, there's a, a kind of fracturing that takes place. So we can think of fracking, we can think of multiple kinds of acts that are taking place within the landscape itself. And so the work should allow for that place of reflection of that point where the, the, the point of a needle or pin actually hits onto another thing and what is the space in between and what does it do um, what is the gesture that happens? What is the effect or the effects of that act within that space? 
you know, one of the other moves that has been in your work for a number of years that I wanted to ask about was the way you use a form that seems to reference human limbs, say a forearm and an upper arm across a piece. Why is that a form and a repeated form that you find useful? The, 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 the way of thinking, I think it's the way the brain is thinking while working. When I do a lot of the drawings, I, I'm more very much interested in the act and the performativity of the body or what it's meant to do. And so if we think of a lot of classical paintings and everything, we, we, would, we would imagine that the face, everything, the environment, the, the landscape, all that becomes part of the narrative. But the way I'm thinking is I'm thinking more in a performative sense in which if I'm interested in thinking through a hand that is going to swipe a surface, then why do I bother with the head, with the neck? Because um, my main focus is the act of swiping. So, and since I work a lot with performance and my way of thinking is very much connected to the performative gestures of the body, the way of drawing will then focus more on that gesture. And so you focus directly on the act of what that person is doing and not if the person is happy, sad, or if the face is melancholic or whatever. But it goes directly to the point and to the gestures I'm thinking and the actions that are taking place. And so the drawing is really working from that perspective. And there is no other decorum around it. Everything that is meant to be there is meant to be there. The landscape or the palettes or, or the, the, just the hands or the legs or the pulling is part of the way of thinking, of the thinking process of the drawing. And that's why this happens. So it's very much reduced to what it's meant to be or my thinking process while making it. You mentioned performance. And one of the things about your work that interests me is how many different media you use to conduct the explorations about which we're talking and the relationships about which we're talking. So you've made painting and drawing and installation and tapestry and performance there's a piece in the MCA Chicago show that uses scent and uh, in, in a way that connects scent to place. Are you at the point where you find any single or two media most effective, or is it the plurality of media that creates the effect you're after? I think it's mainly as a thinking process and while making and experimenting, I fall on things that make sense, that come together. So if I'm trying to make a work that is, or I'm trying to, I'm experimenting on something, the failures or the, the surprises kind of enter into the work also. I wouldn't say that I'm I'm totally connected to one medium, but one of the main mediums that I would say the core of the starting process of thinking would be drawing. And from drawing, it explodes into wherever it wants to go and how it should go. Another part, another form is through thinking of language and, and then working with poetry, because I feel that poetry allows you to be very fluid and you can break the words and play with them and you don't have to worry about full stops, punctuation, she can make mistakes, 
in language with poetry, you can really, it's very malleable. And so these are the two places that kind of start opening up and then the work can take place or take form with the kinds of imagination and the kinds of technologies that are also there. So I'm open to multiple ways of working and with working with different mediums as far as they make sense when they collapse into each other and when they're put next to each other, that they're making, they're having a conversation within, they're having an opening and they're interconnecting and they're relating the multiple layers of my thoughts and experiments. And that's the way I think through the work. The last thing I want to ask, I, I think gets at that idea within the acrylic on paper pieces. You often, but don't always, include in the upper left of the paintings little swatches of color, uh, painted swatches of color. and It's kind of like an index of the color that goes into making the image of the painting. I read that as you're reminding us where the thing comes from and encouraging us always to think about where something comes from. But how do you think of it? Why did, why, did, why did you begin doing that and why do you still do it? It started, I think, more or less as a mistake. When <laughs> I think the color I was using kind of dropped at the side. <laughs> and then I, I used that. I started using my brush and it was a big blob and then I kind of started using that paint that was on the paper to start drawing. And then I, I then poured the next color that I wanted to use and started using that surface as a palette. Um, so it came from a place of a mistake. And then gradually, I think it started making sense in relation to thinking about the work. And another thing was that it made sense to understand what the color was doing on that paper. Because once I mix color in a bowl and then I put it on the paper, the color is not the same. So it allows me to be a bit more precise about the tonal, the tone that I want on that paper because it's directly already on it before going into the drawing itself. But at the same time, in some of the drawings, you would actually be like one of the drawings in Social Consequences. It was in Filtered Memories. No, it was Social Consequences 1. One of the titles of the palettes that I used was called Segregation. And the work was really looking at the ways in which the, the, the separation of bodies, places, the idea of protection and also of barring. And so it made sense to use the palette as a way of thinking of segregation, which also refers to the notion of the segregation of colors or when we think of the color wheel. But if we have to use that term in relation to spaces and or if we think of apartheid, or we think of all these different parts of the city where people are segregated in one way, it made sense to think of it in relation to that notion of race also. So it can be used as a way of thinking through this kind of social constructs, but at the same time, it comes in as a way of thinking through process in the work that you can connect it to look to see how things are slowly being done. It's a, it's a gap between the finished work and the process and the starting point. And that gap allows for maybe that thinking process to take place, I hope. Yeah, it's a really 
versatile way of closing a circle, if you will, or, or, or encouraging the viewer to close the circle. Odubang Kanga, thanks so much. No, thank you so much for the invitation, and it was really great talking to you. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. Acts of Living, the sixth iteration of the highly anticipated biennial exhibition, showcasing 39 artists and collectives living and working in Los Angeles. On view from October 1st to December 31st, and filling nearly every gallery of the museum, this year's edition addresses the intersection between art, community, and everyday life. These practices embrace the value of craft, materiality, performance, and collectivity. Accompanying the exhibition are artists' talks, performances, screenings, and conversations. For more information on the exhibition and programs, visit hammer.ucla.edu. LA-based artist Kelly Akashi is known for her materially hybrid works that are compelling both formally and conceptually. Originally trained in analog photography, the artist is drawn to fluid, impressionable materials and old-world craft techniques such as glass blowing, casting, candle making, bronze, and silicone casting. Encompassing a selection of artworks made over the past decade, Kelly Akashi Formations features a newly commissioned series in which Akashi explores the inherited impact of her family's imprisonment in a Japanese-American incarceration camp during World War II. Now through February 2024, witness Kelly Akashi Formations at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, Griselda Rosas. Rosas's work is on view at the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive in Matrix 282, Griselda Rosas, Yo Te Cuido. The exhibition presents Rosas's textile drawings and sculptural installations that explore themes of inheritance, colonialism, and intergenerational knowledge. The exhibition, which debuted at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego when we recorded this program, and which is on view in Berkeley through November 19th, was curated by Anthony Graham with assistance from Jill Dawsey. Griselda Rosas, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Your work is often not too far away from children, from their presence, from the mythology created around them, from their interests, from their drawings, as I'm sure we'll talk about here in a moment. I'm not sure I'd say if your work starts with children. In fact, I don't think I would, but children are certainly there. Why did you want to get children into the work? I think I have two life, one before I became a mother and one that I once I became a mother. So when I became a mother, I used to only make sculptures. But with my son, he was so little that I started drawing and doing a lot of embroidery. And then as my son got older, like a toddler, he started very curious, interested on the things I was doing. So he often draw with crayons or markers or anything. So I play after he stained my paper, I work with his marks, mark making. But then also, I was more intrigued about childhood and the things that I used to play with. And I remember thinking about horses or slingshots or things that come from war, and now they belong to children's toys. So I started drawing a lot of things that, that we inherited from 
is the aftermath of war and then they become kids toys and i think things are changing but we used to go to this market in tijuana and my son was always intrigued by the slingshot mechanism and then and then he was also very intrigued by horses so i started doing relating history and then childhood toys and then also my son's drawings so the three combined in one plane i get the first two tell me a little bit more about how you made use of your children's drawings well he used to like draw on my surface when he was younger only because he wanted to be next to me and then to incorporate my practice into being motherhood he often used to draw on my own surface like or he learned to use a sewing machine very little like four or five always under supervision so but he used to like put the textile underneath the needle the needle machine and he loved and loved and loved it so he used to be a collaboration in a way of my work and as he got older he's nine now around seven or eight, he started making these monster-like drawings. So then I carbon, I copy his drawings and then I did embroidery of his monster drawings or his creatures. So I started doing embroideries of his, his drawings and they look like mythological creatures. So I, I'm very intrigued by the way he creates. But as he gets older, you can tell that he's more contaminated by culture. They're not as innate. He thinks about being right or wrong. So everything about childhood changes, I think, around nine. So now it's, it's different. So I have a separation. I don't have, he's not no longer my collaborator. Although he's always around. He does, he's not as curious as before with my practice. <laughs> well, <laughs> done. As, as he gets older, he may want to co-credit. Um. <laughs> no, he charged me for his drawings five dollars. He oh, did he really? understood. <laughs> yes, yes, he's very smart. My mother was a painter, and I wish I'd thought of that <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> no, he said, "Mama, you're using my drawings," and I say, "Yes," but and I say, "But I'm gonna give you credit." And he asked me what's credit, and we had a conversation, and then he said, "Well." Do you sell your artwork? And I say, yes. What if you pay me for my drawings? And I say, yes, I will pay you $5. And he say, yes. Oh, amazing. So Absolutely. I paid him $5. He understood the whole process, the art business really well, better than I did. <laughs> I think he may understand it better than some people in the art world. You mentioned embroidery a moment ago. I mean, of course, we'll have images on manpodcast.com, but you know, for audio purposes, you often sew textiles and embroidery into works on paper. And of course, you make have made standalone sculptures that feature textiles and embroidery too. Speaking of the works on paper, what about sewing into paper and bringing textile into paper interested you? Well, I am very intrigued by paper. I think paper is a very novel historical surface and I learned how to do embroidery when I was about seven on the first embroidery I did and this is an old-fashioned thing I don't think people do it now a middle age when I was in elementary school they teach you they used to teach you how to do a, tor a tortilla napkin 
So I learned how to embroider a tortilla napkin because it was like a gender practice. And then we always made one for Mother's Day for our mothers. But then I want to like play with things that also my son was playing with paper. And then I was doing watercolors. So I thought, why not do embroidery on, on paper instead of a cotton textile? So then I started doing embroidery on paper and I really enjoyed the practice. And it's technically it's more difficult. It's not as easy as on textile because it creates holes and it breaks and then you have to kind of patch. But I think I, I really like the language it creates. We've been talking about kid stuff, but your work is also very, very full of adult stuff, including various faith traditions and mythological beliefs. And there's, in a whole lot of your work, there is a whole lot of address of Catholicism, address of particularly Mexican or Spanish imperial imagery. Why is that an important point of address for you? And what do you hope you're doing in how you bring your references to Catholicism into the work? For a long time, I've been very interested in war and regalia and also traditional Mexican custom. And I live in Oaxaca for on and off. I, every other year I went for one, two or three months. So I, Oaxaca was often my reference and I live on the indigenous communities and I'm profoundly drawn and intrigued by traditional custom clothing. And a lot of the custom clothing comes from European colonization, like the Virgin attire. But also I grew up Catholic and then all these references are part of my background which I never consider relevant because once something is very innate to you it's second nature but then once I removed myself from being absorbed in Catholicism I can see the violent imagery and then syncretism and then all these practices as contemporary society still develop as everyday rituals. And also, my mother was a huge devotee of Virgen de Guadalupe. So a lot of my imagery is kind of in honor of the female representation. It's kind of like an iconic national representation of what a good female should be. And he's a brown virgin, and he has all these historical references to a pre-colonial goddess. So... I'm I'm combining history, traditional custom clothing, and my background in in Catholicism. So it's all this research that goes on a cycle. Some of my favorite of those works are artworks in which a a cultural collision, if you will, plays out on the surface of your works. There is there there are the Catholic references, including including a Mary or a Marian image, often on top of or surrounded by violence. And that violence is often presented with childlike, back to children, presented with a certain childlike imagery. What about mixing church with violence with childlike representations of that violence works for you? Well, of course, this is an implicit history, right? It's like, it's a continuous next generation still have even my son generation things are changing radically but still like every generation goes through the same 
cycle of violence and abuse through Catholic Church. But I don't want to make this a direct message. It's just I, I also want to work with the poetics of the religious aesthetics and, and also bring awareness, maybe not awareness, that's not the right word, maybe bring a historical reference, but in with poetry and not so much I'm not I'm not sure how to paraphrase this, but definitely I'm making a a criticism, but I it's not my I don't think I'm my work as being activist, but I don't think it's passive either. I'm talking about what we inherit and what will be inherited through the next generation, basically. So I guess I don't know how to phrase it correctly, but but it is a cycle of violence. And we inherit and we think it's Okay, in, as a national thing, like I say, I think there's uprising a new mindset now, especially in, in the capital, like Mexico City. But I think as a general, the Catholic Church still and the views on morality and, and still very violent country is all is all one single, it's almost one single entity. There's no separation between violence and religion. They're all they're together. And, and I think that comes shouting through in the work. I mean, I, I think the work in the way no single part of a piece of paper or anything within the pictorial rectangle is prioritized, you know, points to a unity between, you know, violence and religious history and culture you know, I, 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 I think that's really clear and, and direct. Now is where I will try to awkwardly segue to breastfeeding. <laughs> Let's see if I can come up with a way to do that. <laughs> you know, a few years ago when I was breastfeeding, I did, I decided that I want to like make an encyclopedia of all the words, all the artworks in history of breastfeeding. So I started doing this like crazy research about icons and then not, not only European, but pre-colonial Aztec through all kinds of cultures like Asian about breastfeeding. And then I wrote an article actually that I should share with you about breastfeeding through history. And then I did cyanotypes and I want to use the cyanotypes to make my encyclopedia of breastfeeding icons. And then as I was making the cyanotypes, I was thinking, oh, I think these pieces will look good with embroidery. So I started doing embroidery on these cyanotypes. But then I found a lot of interesting information. I found this painting by, I forgot the painter actually, but I would think it's Velasquez, who I have to, I, my memory is not working at this moment. But it was a woman breastfeeding, and she had developed facial hair. So she had a beard and a mustache, and she was breastfeeding, and then she was painted next to her husband. So I encountered all these, like, really peculiar that we're not used to seeing about breastfeeding women. And then I was more intrigued about breastfeeding, and is milk, actually breast milk is tissue, Anyway, I went off hours and hours of doing research about breastfeeding, and then I had a journal too, and I never fully developed my encyclopedia <laughs> or my artwork, but I did a lot of pieces about with embroidery cyanotypes, and I, I think they're, they're small, 
and I had a lot of fun doing those pieces. I really enjoy the process and I want to go back, but I also think that is a part of my life that is is not no longer relevant because I'm not a breastfeeding mother. So I'm not as intrigued as before. No, but they are really interesting works. I mean, there is like in, 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 the, in, the, in the works about kind of cultural collision and Catholicism and violence we were talking about a moment ago, there are in those works, you know, these, these relentlessly overlapping histories within an individual work of yours. And in, the, and in the breastfeeding icons, I think that's there too. I mean, there's, there's not only the classic mythology, say, of Romulus and Remus suckling a she-wolf kind of the origin story of Rome, not kind of the origin story of Rome. But you're also, you know, as you mentioned, using cyanotypes, a medium pioneered by a woman, Anna Atkins. You're adding, adding embroidery to them, you know, kind of complicating a story of, of gender expectations, gendered expectations. And like that earlier work, there are all of these layers happening at once, and I always enjoy that. <laughs> I like having... Yeah, and you know... Also, sorry, I interrupt you. I, I also find, I also found that most breastfeeding icons, they were like really young women, like teenagers, like something that in our society, like is is you know what, it's not permissible. Like is is look, they're mostly teenagers. They look like maximum eighteen, and now breastfeeding women, like there will be, I would say, middle age or in their late twenties. So it's interesting to also find these different ways, perspective view, motherhood. Oh, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, one of the things that you do in, in those breastfeeding icons is, you know, you are not hewing only to stories from Christian or Catholic countries. You know, there is one, one of the breastfeeding icons uh, involves a, a picture from, I presume, an Egyptian frieze or Egyptian statuary. Another is from Indian art, and they're all pretty young. They all look pretty young. Yes. And also, I look up my article. This is a painter. The painter, his name is Jose de Rivera. Oh, yeah. And the piece is called, it's a Spanish painting. It's called Mujer Barbuda. And it's like a, one of the um, most interesting pieces that I found for gender. And then, of course, Mother Krishna and mother, and then anyway, I, I I thought it was like a very interesting project, and maybe in the future I will complete my encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably enjoy that. Which is very extensive. It's very extensive, but like I say, I think I think it's no longer me. So I think it is not something I'm very intrigued anymore. But I, I did love the project, and I, I, and I think they, those embroideries were good. I, I like the process. I want to wrap up by talking about a couple of sculptures in the show. The largest sculpture in the exhibition features wood string that pins the sculptures down on a wall, and then at the bottom of these pieces of wood, there are these round forms covered with mud. They're really unlike anything else in the show. I know exactly where you're talking. There is an inscription on a really tall wall, and they're actually not mud. They're like cement. So what they are is they're actually, I've been thinking about slingshots profoundly, not, not only because it was a 
very inexpensive toy of my childhood. I never kill birds, but I used to break bottles with my neighbors. I grew up like not too far away from the border wall. So I saw the wall from being chicken wire to later be this metal structure to have these like surveillance. So I saw the whole stages of the wall, but then that wall wasn't far from my house. And, and we played there with just breaking bottles with slingshots. But then slingshot is also a metaphor to getting to the other side almost. And then, and then recently I saw slingshots being used on the Ukrainian war, the, on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, on gangs in Central America. But then also doing all my research about war regalia and war instruments, the Aztecs and the Toltecs make these like really beautiful, uh, elaborate slingshots, either with jade or wood or carving wood. But they're like so, they're pieces of, they're magnificent, they're well craft and they're like and then the, many of them survive in different museums so i i did a whole re, like i like to do research on very peculiar things like slingshots and then also the fascination that my son had with the technicality of putting a rock and then being shot and get it really far away so i i not only like the system which is very ancestral and very basic but i also like the, his, the global history that unifies slingshots is not only pertinent to one culture, it, it belongs to humanity in a way, like a primitive tool. So that helps me with the question I was trying to ask enormously, which was in the slingshots with the blue and white handles, is the, is the blue and white a way of referencing a specific culture vis-a-vis -vis the ones with the handles that look like mud, but which actually aren't? Well, the blue and white... There's a, a very um, beautiful ceramic made in, in Mexico called Talavera. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's blue and white like the Portuguese tiles. But I think it comes from China. I think it's a Chinese invention and adopted in different ways in different parts of the world, particularly Portugal and Talavera in Mexico. So I think all those cross-cultural things made through colonization, adopted through colonization, are something that permeates contemporary culture now, especially crafts and culture and in, in sections of the country, in Mexico, of course. And then it's something that we highly value growing up, the blue and white plates. And there's also, we had pozole plates when I was growing up and they were all blue and white. And they're very, pozole plates are very specific. They have like a flower rim. So I was trying to mimic that ceramic into another form of creating a slingshot. But that installation is very particular because I was also looking at the way gun rocks are placed in museums, like gun rocks. So, so it's one stock after so I, I stuck them making reference to the way gun racks are organized. You've used that blue and white in other sculptural works, too. It's, it's really striking. Awesome. Griselda Rosas, thanks so much. Thanks to you. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.